your dog off the lead in the park and it goes and attacks somebody whose fault is it yours or the dog's well how about if you replace the dog with an ai agent and you replace the park with a task that you've asked it to complete these kinds of questions might sound like sci-fi but in fact they are increasingly going to be the kinds of things that we're going to have to deal with as ai becomes more and more complex and better and better at defining its own goals, we're going to have to start to understand to what degree we hold ourselves responsible versus the AI or robot. My guest this week is a specialist in exactly this kind of ethical and legal question. He is David Gunkel, a professor at Northern Illinois University and the author of various books on the ethics of emerging technologies. He's just released his latest Person Thing Robot, which is available through MIT Press. And I spoke to him about the various different moral, ethical and legal quandaries that are bound up in these very serious questions about the technological evolution that we find ourselves on. I found it a really super interesting conversation. And as I say in the show, he's really made me think about a lot of these things in a way that I hadn't previously considered. So I hope you enjoy it. And without further delay, this is The Complete Tech Heads with me, Tom Edwards. And here I bring you David Gunkel. Complete Tech Heads. Hello, friends. Today I am here with David Gunkel, who is a professor at Northern Illinois University and an award-winning educator, scholar, and author who specializes in the ethics of emerging technology, which is exactly what we're going to be talking about today. So thanks very much for joining me. Um, I understand you're in Wales at the moment. Um, how are you doing? How are you enjoying the UK? Um, good so far. It's been nice. Awesome. Okay, so um, super excited to um, ask you about your new book, Person, Thing, Robot. Um, so I guess, first of all, um, to riff on the title, how do you think about defining a thing and defining a person? Yeah, it's a, it, obviously it's an important question because it's the title. Um, and really where I gather both the definition of thing and person from is from the Romans. Um, we operate in our current legal systems with uh, very two distinct entities. Either you are a subject of the law, you're a person, or you're an object of the law, you're a thing. And that distinction uh, comes from Gaius, who wrote a book about Roman law called the Institutes. And he basically says that, uh, you know, there, we deal with two things in the law, person or thing. And as a result, this is how we sort of organize our world uh, in terms of who counts as another subject that we have to respect and take their uh, rights into consideration. And what is a mere thing that we are able to use and even abuse as we see fit. And so... I suppose that the, the, the premise then becomes that we are increasingly starting to blur that, that line, right? So you, uh, I think you raised the example in the book of um, pets um, and, you know, you might have a, a, a dog and, you know, it, as, a, as a legal entity, you might have some kind of gray area there because I guess it has some agency. So is your... Um, is that the basis of your thinking then? Is it to do with agency 
is it to do with um, the ability to take decisions in the real world? Is that how we have classically defined persons? And, and is that where the gray area is starting to become more prevalent? So what we're encountering right now, I believe, is the inability to decide if these new socially interactive, semi-intelligent kinds of artifacts are going to be considered just things, or if we're going to have to uh, expand the notion of person to uh, incorporate these different kinds of artifacts. Now, to give you a good example of how we've already done this, uh, right now, you and I live in a world where artifacts have personhood. We call those artifacts corporations. And corporations are persons not because they have feelings, not because they're conscious, not because they're sentient, but because we need to fit them into our moral and legal categorizations. We need to decide where they stand in relationship to us in social circumstances. And so I think right now we're encountering what I've called the machine question, which is, are these things or are these persons? And, you know, how are we going to make these decisions? Should we decide right here, right now that there are going to be things? Or should we decide that we need to open up the category of person? And what are the costs and benefits of those two decisions? And so what do you think the pressures are likely to be on us as a civilization to make that distinction? So uh, some of the pressures have to do with just the fact that we anthropomorphize these different devices and therefore project into them expectations and emotions and uh, states of mind that may not be there, yet nevertheless, it's part of what makes us a social creature. It's part of what we do in interacting with others, whether it be another human person, a non-human animal, or an artifact, and therefore uh, being attentive to what human beings do and what human beings need as we are engaging in social interactions and relationships with artifacts is important. There's also a concern on the legal side because we want to know uh, what are the opportunities for assigning responsibility to AI and robots for their decision-making. Uh, what are the limits of what we can do in terms of our uh, exercise of ownership over various uh, entities like a robot or an AI? And so what we are sort of having seen played out for us right now are a lot of challenges that are asking us whether we can fully reify these things and make them things or whether we are going to be personifying these entities and making them something more than a thing. And so you can see how this binary that we inherited from the Romans is sort of pulling us in two different directions. And resolving this is something that's going to require not only um, a lot of, uh, you know, conversation about the moral uh, business and the ethics of this all, but a lot of legal decisions about how we want to situate these things in our legal systems so that we are able to um, really make decisions that are in our best interest as we move forward um, working with all these various different kinds of artifacts around us. Yeah, so you, you mentioned anthropomorphization, which I, I think is, is becoming more and more um, important now. Uh, you know, like you are seeing increasingly people interacting with, with AIs in particular in a way that is almost indistinguishable from the way that they interact with, with humans, 
right? But I guess is is that not a is that almost not a, a kind of quirk of humans rather than a kind of way of defining things? Yes. Do you see what I mean? No, no, I, I agree with you exactly. It is something we do. It is something we do to each other because I don't know that you necessarily have a conscious mind unless I, um, you know, project into you my expectations from my own experience and say you must be the same because you look the same, you behave the same, right? Uh, this is Descartes' problem in the med meditations, you know, cogito ergo sum. It gets him to understand he's a thinking thing, but how is he going to be certain that everybody else is? Mm. We anthropomorphize our animals, whether it be dogs or cats um, or even non-domestic animals as we uh, try to describe what you know other wild animals are or aren't doing, as the case may be. Yeah. And we anthropomorphize our artifacts. We anthropomorphize cars. We anthropomorphize musical instruments. Buildings. Uh, and buildings. The, yeah. The, the, the building pictures that look like people. Yeah. I mean, they're so, funny, right? It, like it's, they are. It's, this thing is so deep that it's kind of yeah. almost humorous. So I think, you know, one of the things you often hear from people who are sort of critical of this tendency of anthropomorphization, they'll say, well, just don't do it. Stop that. <laughs> don't, don't anthropomorphize because that's a bad thing. Yeah. Um, we can't stop it. It's what we do. It what's makes us social. It is the sort of uh, glue of our social uh, institutions. And so instead of looking at it as a bug that has to be eliminated, I think we've got to look at it as a feature that has to be carefully managed. Managed in the design, managed in the marketing, managed in the user experience. And we don't have a lot of ex you know, experience right now with uh, you know, anthropomorphizing of robots because they're still pretty brand new. And we're still kind of feeling our way in the dark to decide you know, how we want to do this. But I think if we look at it as a management problem and not a bug to be eliminated, I think we could get a better understanding of what possible futures there are for us because it's really about us and about what we do. Yeah. Have, have you ever interacted with an, like an AI friend or uh, any of these uh, like, um, you know, pretend people that are like replica or anything like that? Yeah, I do it all the time um, in my classes because I invite my students okay. to uh, do this as yeah. part of you know their learning about this technology. And um, it is at times um, frustrating when they don't do what you expect them to do. And other times they're incredibly uh, seductive in the way that they sort of draw you in and uh, you sort of forget that you're talking to a machine, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I worry, I've, I've done a couple of videos on this. I worry about the AI girlfriend phenomenon just taking millions of people off the off the grid eventually if they do become so captivating that um you know that 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 people prefer them to other people like that i i feel like that could be a big problem for us as a as a species i'm actually less worried about that than a lot of the kind of moral outrage that surrounds this uh sex robot stuff and the ai girlfriend um and that's because we have always been investing emotionally in non-real fictional artifacts. Um, we do it when we read and we uh, invest in a character in a book and a novel. We do it when we go to the movies and we have a very close relationship with a particular character in a TV show or something that you know really you know, touches us in a way that when they're harmed or they die or whatever, it is something that we cry and you know we, uh, yeah. it really pushes our emotional buttons. Uh, I think we have to figure out what the balance is. And I think initially 
the responses, oh my God, this is horrible. People are going to do that instead of spending time going outside and playing and yeah. uh, you know being, being with other yeah, people. Yeah. Um, we worried this way about video games. And we kind of figured that out. We actually worried this way about books. Uh, when, when the novel was invented, it was, you know, the, the, the big worry was women would spend all this time reading and they would not <laughs> marry and raise families because they would fall in love with literature. Um, wow. Again, we kind of figured out literature. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's a matter of some experience and some um, good reflection on, you know, what the opportunities and challenges actually are. Maybe we'll just maybe we'll just incorporate them like like we have with everything else. Maybe we'll have our real girlfriend and our and our AI girlfriend, and it'll just be it'll just be normal. Who knows? Um, yeah, wild wild uh, times. So, on the question of, of of things, then, so there are there are you know quite famous people who are having this debate around AI risk and all that stuff. Uh, Mark Andreessen being the the most mm -hmm. prominent. Um, I'm not sure if you're. I'm sure you are aware of what, what he's been saying about it. He's very much saying, look, these are things. It's just technology. There, there is no, um, and he's talking in, in regards to AI risk particularly here, but he seems very much of that, um, of that side of the argument that it's just another technology. It's just another thing. It's just another tool. It's just another hammer, or, you know, or uh, to, to, to use uh, your example, I believe. Um, what's your take on that position? Right. So these are manufactured, human-designed artifacts. They are ostensibly things. And that seems to make a whole lot of sense. It seems very reasonable, very rational. But it's coming from that very rational part of the brain. It doesn't take into account what we, again, do as social creatures. Hmm. So to give you a really good example of where the line gets crossed, you take something, and again, thing being the operative word here, like Alexa. And Alexa is designed to be a tool that you utilize in vocal mode to get answers to questions and basically voice uh, activated search. So it seems very reasonable, you know, what, what that's all about. But as people have brought these things into their home, they're discovering their children and even they, human uh, adults, are saying thank you to Alexa for the answers <laughs> that she gives. Now, we don't yeah. thank the hammer for helping us build a house. We don't thank the toaster for making toast, right? It's the social presence of Alexa that changes the equation and yeah. does it in ways that I think challenge us to uh, rethink whether or not uh, we can relate to these as just things because it seems we're not doing that. And I think someone like Andreessen uh, saying that these are just things, get over it, uh, it sounds very reasonable, but it's not very... Uh, be, it's not very practically oriented with regards to what actually happens when users get these things in their hands and start interacting with them on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've said thank you to Alexa. Uh, <laughs> and and, and I, I have thought to myself, what the hell are you doing? You know, it, there's a weird cognitive dissonance there. It does start to seep into the social part of your brain in a way that you're absolutely right, in a way that most technology doesn't. So we, we clearly are in, because we're, we're, we're in the... What do they, uh, is that like the uncanny valley now, aren't we? Right, where they're right. getting quite close. Like they're not quite there. Like uh, you know, interacting with uh, with you know, to go back to um, the AI friends, replica and stuff. The main thing I notice is the short-term memory is not there. So they'll forget stuff that you said, you know, thirty seconds ago or whatever, and then that that kind of clicks. Oh yeah, it's not a real person. But that'll get there, yeah. right. Like we can't be far away. 
it'll get there, but also it, it shows you how these things are really in our current social environment. They're not quite things, but they're also not quite persons. They're kind of in this gray zone in between. And again, we don't have a lot of experience with things that are kind of in that in-between zone. I think the best example are domestic animals. Yeah. Um, you know, at one point, dogs were considered tools to assist humans in herding and hunting and all kinds of other things. And uh, when a dog wasn't a good hunter or was gun shy, uh, my grandfather a hundred years ago would take it out back and shoot it. Why? It's a tool. It doesn't do its job. So you dispose of it. Today, that sounds barbaric, right? We, we would find that absolutely insane. Um, and just a hundred years later, the dogs hasn't really evolved much than it was a hundred years ago, but now I'm a pet parent. Yeah. I'm not yeah. a dog owner, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I adopt a dog. I don't buy a dog. Yeah. Um, and when I do adopt a dog, they send the adoption agency over to my home to make sure my home is safe enough for the animal, right? Yeah. So what's changed is us. Our relationship with the dog has altered in a sh very short period of time. And now the dog is not quite a thing, but it's also not quite a person. And I think that provides us with a sort of template for how robots um, will sort of also push these similar boundaries um, and challenge us to rethink these things. Yeah. You're, you're, you're totally right. I, I don't know if you've, I know you're over in the UK, you've, you've been here for a little while. I don't know if you've seen any of the news about the, about dogs. Like this very thing is, is, is the, is coming up a lot in the news recently about these XL bully dogs. Oh yeah. Um, they're especially aggressive dogs, like something like 95, 96% of all dog in dog related injuries are caused by this particular breed. Um, and there's a big debate going on about, you know, people want to blame the owners some people want to blame the dogs the government's saying you can't have this breed of dog some people are saying well it's the owner and i guess what they're doing there is taking part in that exact debate right the people who are saying you blame the dog they're making the dog a person the people who say you blame the owner they're making the dog a thing right correct yeah and you know if you push it into the legal arena um if it is your property you are responsible for you know your property um, yeah. but if it has some agency that the law imparts to that object, now all of a sudden it shifts the responsibility from you to the dog. And that is what you're seeing, I think, play out in real time is how this is going to be negotiated, uh, in the case of these particular animals. Yeah. And so if we, if, if we, if we keep on that, that, that legal question then, and move on to the technology. So we, we're clearly not at a stage yet where um, robots and AIs are taking lots of decisions in the real world autonomously, but, but we're going to, right? Like that, that's very clear that that's, that's really not far away. And do you think that is the point at which we're really gonna have to have a serious conversation about this when there are decisions that they're making in the real world? So I think this is how we sort of, um convince ourselves that this is not so urgent just yet. We say, well, yeah, what these questions you raise are really important, but you know, it's going to require full, you know, moral agency on the part of the AI or the robot. We maybe we'll get there, we're not there yet. So let's just table this for now and we'll pick that up, you know, 5 years, 10 years, 20 years from now and uh, get into this. I think that's too late. I think we've got to start to really think about our moral and legal categories currently. 
because they not only relate to the robots, they relate to the things of the environment, they relate to animals. And this is all part and parcel of us really being challenged to think about the way that we organize our world in terms of these binary categories. It may be the case that what we inherited from the Romans, you're either a person or a thing, is already limited and limiting. And we may need a, a more fine-grained moral and legal ontology where we're able to uh, factor into our social environment and our moral and legal decision-making processes uh, uh, these different kinds of entities that are not either one or the other. One side question um, before I, I come back on that. I noticed that clearly in, in the title and, and generally you're often talking about robot rather than about AI. And that seems different. Like, is there, there's clearly a distinction between the two things. And clearly we've had robots for a long time that, that don't behave autonomously. They're just, you know, actuators or whatever, an arm that lifts a thing and drops it somewhere else and doesn't do anything else. Why, why that choice of words? Why robot rather than AI? Yeah, no, this is a really good question. And I think it can be answered in a couple of ways. One is that it's historically older. Robot comes to us from the 1920s out of the science fiction uh, play written by Carl Chapik called RUR, or Rossum's Universal Robots. Uh, wow. the, the word that's robot. A, that's yeah. a great nugget. I'll, I'll definitely clip that up. I, oh, good. Uh, okay. No uh, so the word robot um, comes from the Czech word robota, which means servant or, or right. even slave. And so we've had, I think, a longer, at least literary history with robots than we have had with AI, which comes to us from the 1950s at the Dartmouth uh, summer uh, meeting. So I like robot because it is the older term and it provides a template, I think, even for what we do with AI as that uh, evolves later in the 20th century. Another reason I go with robot is that robot is something that people are able to recognize as being individualized where a lot of ai systems are cloud-based and accessed through various uh means um but the ai is elsewhere and i think that makes it a little abstract uh for individuals to really get a handle on what we mean by social presence if it's that abstracted or abstracted away from uh our physical reality whereas robots are something that um really impinge on us as a entity that we observe in front of us. Mm. But throughout the book, I sort of move back and forth between robot and AI. And sometimes I write it robot slash AI uh, to recognize that uh, a lot of what we are talking about with these uh, categories of person and thing will apply both to robots and AI as we make these decisions moving forward. Mm. And I, su I suppose that cloud-based distributed nature of large language models will presumably present a, a challenge all of its own where it isn't even individualized it's you know like if, if you're talking about you know the responsibility for an act mm -hmm. um it could be you know you might not even know what what country the the data center's in right or it, or it could be a many at, at once like uh, presumably that's going to be an even bigger challenge than the initial individualized one that you're kind of um, alluding to with the with the robots yeah no it will definitely be so um you probably have seen the, the film her uh in yes, the film I her love it. I love it. Yeah. samantha's the operating system that is uh resident on his mobile device right yeah yeah uh but it turns out that samantha's not only having a relationship with uh our main character but 
having a relationship with a lot of other people um, simultaneously. And that's because of this cloud-based presence uh, or, or lack of individual presence. So even though it comes to you through this device, the AI is elsewhere and therefore yeah. can be connected to lots of other people. It also means that we could be in a situation where one set of laws that are made, for example, in the United States for addressing these questions could be circumvented if the AI is located in the Bahamas, for example, the same way we do with financial transactions now. And so now you're talking about how do you negotiate differences in legal jurisdictions as you are looking at which laws apply where and uh, you know how we will negotiate the international uh, relationship part of this uh, whole business. Yeah, I think in, in her, at, at the end, doesn't she make friends with lots of other yeah. AIs around the universe and then she kind of leaves him behind, right? Um, I mean, that's that's a... That's going to be a wild world when the AIs are all making friends with each other and leaving us dumb apes back back home. <laughs> but I, but I think I mean, in the film that's a, it's a really remarkable moment because um, we are as uh, viewers of the film uh, sort of making this assumption that you know the mobile device that he holds in his hands is where Samantha resides, and it's not where Samantha resides. The same way that a lot of our apps that are on our mobile devices. What is on board the device is very small in terms of its memory and in terms of its programming, and that all the resources that make it do what it do make make it do what it does are located in some cloud based service, yeah. and that means we're looking at entities that are not easily individuated individuated the same way that we normally think of individuals. Yeah, and that's changing our relationship. Uh, I think in the same way that uh, at the end of her the main character realizes that uh, Samantha's sleeping around with everybody in the in the <laughs> world because it, she's in the cloud. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, poor guy, imagine. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting, that idea, because it's... Um, the, the, the point you're making about legal jurisdictions, I think we're all we we already see that a lot of that play out now. Like for you know, China are just saying now that they are talking about leading on an AI regulatory framework, right? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you see it with the big social media firms where the regulation in Europe differs wildly from regulation in in the US, and so you have like things like GDPR where they're getting you know you, you get lots of sites that that switch off in Europe, and then they kind of have to negotiate some way to come back. You have these big fines for Google that are led by the EU. Um, as this technology becomes more ubiquitous and increasingly more useful and valuable, I mean, do you anticipate those issues becoming even more tricky to deal with? Yeah, I do. Um, But it's interesting because I think oftentimes we look at that differences in jurisdictions as being a real big problem because the way China will do something will be different than the way the EU does something, will be different from the way the US does something. But I think in dealing with a lot of these questions that we're confronting right now with AI and robots, this diversity might actually be a good thing because like biodiversity, it's a way that we can experiment with different ways of sorting out these questions and making decisions that will help, I think, build a conversation around the best means of developing um, a regulatory and policy framework Um, because no no one country is going to get it 100% right. 
And I think if we're sort of seeing different versions, that may actually, just like biodiversity, build in some sort of regulatory diversity that we can draw on, assuming, of course, that we learn from each other. Um, that's not necessarily the, always the case. Yeah, it's more, more difficult to do where China's concerned, I think, than, uh, than US and, and Europe. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I often think, you know, I, I don't know if you think much about, about doomerism and like AI risk, X risk, P doom, all, all, of, all of this sort of stuff. I, I often think about that, you know, the risk of ASI killing us all, basically. Um, I often think that diversity, competition, capitalism, might actually be our savior on that front because it, I, I think where you've got lots of different AI companies doing really amazing things, competing with one another, it's going to make it difficult for one to rise very, very quickly above all others and, and kind of take them all out, right? So, like, do, do you ever think about, about, about that, about that diversity of, of different models and, and businesses making them? Yeah, so I... I... I think you're absolutely right. Um, it, there's something for us in terms of uh, good outcomes with regards to having a wider range of players yeah. developing yeah. these these tools and these technologies. Um, and that's because you can have not only competition, which can drive innovation, and that's useful, but you can also have just different ways of seeing what's possible. Um, what worries me, I think, right now is we see a real uh, accumulation of the power over these algorithms and these systems in the hands of a few. You've got your Googles, your Amazons, your Alibabas, um, you know, and you don't have a, a great deal of, of smaller players. Um, there are, you know, a few here and there, but I mean, everyone's talking chat GPT. There yeah. are other la large language models, but everyone's talking about the open AI product, right? Yeah. And so I think I'm not worried so much about um, corporate players uh, working in this field and developing the research, I'm worried about monopolization um, and the way one player can accumulate a lot of the power uh, to see, uh, you know, where this goes and how it, it develops forward. So, yeah, I think the diversity could be really very useful. I, I think, it, you know, one of the things we had prior to a lot of the recent uh, innovations from a lot of the large tech companies is that in academia, you had every lab was doing something and they were, you know, putting out different ideas and different approaches. And I think that's a thing to shoot for because there, there, for, there you had a lot of diversity. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that the, so I, I spoke to a guy called Joseph Jacks recently, who's a venture capitalist in, in open source tech. Uh, and so he's very strongly of the opinion, obviously, as you'd imagine, that we should maintain as open source an outlook. He actually calls it open weight, not open source, because mm. of a, a quirk of the way that it's that it's built. It's actually not source code. It's 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 probability weights. That's another another yeah right story altogether. Um, but his position was um, that essentially Sam Altman's sort of you know a plea for regulation and um, taking investment from Microsoft, making it less open. Is essentially just shooting for regulatory capture and you know like going straight for a for a monopoly and to kind of pull up the ladder now that he's got this huge yeah. user base is that a concern that you would share do you think yeah i have a big concern of re regulatory capture and also ethics washing um okay. i think both are ways ethics washing. I, I think both are ways in which uh industry can um really 
create a, uh, an environment where government is unable to do what government is good at. Uh, the reason you want regulation, the reason you want policy, is to balance where you have inequities of power. And when you have large tech companies with a lot of money developing products um, in almost a monopoly kind of scenario, uh, it means that they have all the power and those of us who are users of their services or their products uh, do not have a great deal of power in the, uh, in the marketplace. And so one of the things government can do is through regulation, it can sort of balance that out a little bit so that the people have some power uh, in deciding how things are used, where, why, and what it all means. And right now, if you look at what's happening, especially in the U.S., who's going to Washington to talk to regulators about regulating these technologies? It's right. the CEOs of the big tech companies. Yeah. And so I do worry about re regulatory capture in that case because they are going to ask for Congress to make regulations that foster their industry, that foster their ability to develop their products, their services, and uh, may not you know, be thinking about what's best for the uh, citizens of the United States. Yeah. It, would, it would be good if at those meetings you had representatives of labor unions and representatives of different workers' groups and, you know, churches and you name it. Um, I think we all Open need... Open source uh, developers, maybe? Yeah, that too. We need, you know, all, all stakeholders have to have a seat at the table. And right now we've not had a very large enough table, um, at least uh, in terms of who's going to Washington and s sitting before the Congress people. Sure. And do you have a position on AI risk, like the risk of artificial superintelligence and, you know, like doomerism more broadly? So I think the whole notion of superintelligence and artificial general intelligence, I mean, it's a nice sort of science fiction idea that we can think about. I think its practicalities and realities are much more limited. Okay. Um, I don't think we're racing towards a future in which the AI is going to take over and turn us into slaves. Okay. Um, That's positive. Cool optimism. Yeah. I, I think what we're doing, and so this is a, a suggestion that I've made for a while now, um, we might need to replace the A in artificial intelligence with the word alien. We're creating alien intelligence. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not like us. It, it does things we can't do. Yeah. Um, again, I go back to animals. Why do human beings domesticate various animals like dogs it's because dogs do things we can't do we didn't domesticate dogs because we want them to be as intelligent or more intelligent than us we domesticated them because they can sniff out bombs they can yeah. find children that have you know been lost in the forest they can do things that we just are incapable of doing on our own and i think a lot of the things that we are building that we call ai are actually kinds of alien intelligences that are able to do things that we are unable to do. For example, find a carcinoma cell um, in vast amounts of data where the doctors who are doing the diagnosis don't have the ability to look at that much stuff, right? Or yeah. with NASA, crunching all the information they get from their satellites um, and deep space probes, where looking at all of that data, again, would be beyond human comprehension. So. I think that's what we're looking at. We're looking at this sort of partnering with AI and not replacement. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's positive. And, and you actually are, are actually falling closer on on the Mark Andreessen side of the argument, I think, in that regard. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not, you know, you're, it sounds like you're more of a techno optimist um, in in certainly in, in the doomerism sense anyway. 
Yeah, you know, and I worry, and I'm not the only person who have said this, but I, I do worry that the doomerist uh, rhetoric does create a kind of emergency, right? This is yeah. a this is a huge problem. We got to fix it now. We got to get out in front of it, um, and that causes us to sort of maybe miss other things that are crucial right now, um, and maybe even more practical uh, given where we currently sit in time. Yeah. And and also potentially, uh, you know, an excuse for regulatory capture as well. Yes. I think there's that, you know, that sense of emergency is felt in Washington. It's felt in Westminster as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You, you see it being mobilized by a lot of the big players in this uh, arena. Yeah, for sure. Um, OK, so look, let's let's talk a bit about your position in terms of what we should be thinking about from a legal standpoint. So, in, you know, when we talk about this different categorization, are you saying we should be creating new categories? Should we be creating one intermediary category? Should there be different categories for cloud versus, you know, like uh, sealed off robotic units? Like, how do you believe this um, legality around AI and robotics should proceed in future? Yeah, so this is a really good question. It really gets to the final parts of the book. So if we only have these two categories, person and thing, so the question is, okay, if we can't fit the robot into the category of thing very neatly, and we can't fit the robot into the category of person very neatly, what do we do? What, what's, what's the outcome? So there's been a number of proposals that have been put out there. One uh, rather weird one, but it, it's very uh, popular, is that we need a third category in between robot and person. And that sounds like a pretty reasonable way of thinking. When you got two extremes, you find the radical middle and you come up with some sort of in-between uh, category. The only problem is that we do have an in-between category. The Romans already had it, and that's the slave. Right. <laughs> and so slaves in Roman times were things, property, that could also yeah. act as persons in business transactions. So there's a, a number of legal scholars that are suggesting that uh, all we would need to do to solve this problem is reactualize the Roman slave laws um, and make it apply to robots. And uh, interestingly, it's mainly white guys that propose this idea. Um, but the problem right. is, the, the real problem is, is that uh, this idea is being proposed by people who are occupying the position of the master, forgetting the legacy of human slavery and that there are other people on the other side of this uh, equation who have suffered the uh, devastating consequences of slavery across generations. Sure. And I'm not worried about what the robot is going to feel. I'm worried about what we will be creating for ourselves if we allow us to become masters, basically. Sure. So that's yeah. one solution. Another solution is to create what's called a kind of gradient theory of personhood, where you don't have just one category of person, but you have different range of categories of person and that we could plug the robot into any number of different positions in this sort of gradient theory. And that's a way of taking the binary and saying, let's make it more analog. Let's make it not either or, but let's make it, you know, kind of either or, but a lot of stuff in between that we could yeah. occupy. And that obviously would be a reasonable solution. And it's one that's going to take a considerable amount of legal effort to decide, you know, what these new categories are and, and how they're going to operate. But uh, that's a fairly credible response. My response is to basically deconstruct the opposition between thing and person and recognize that we're all things. 
Like we all, you know, sort of not, not just, I'm, not, I'm not, not trying to flatten the ontology, but just to recognize that we are all physically embodied things in this universe. And that if we recognize our relationship, our kinship with all of these different things around us and not see ourselves as somehow really special, but more of, of you know, a member of this family of things, we will have a better relationship, not only to the technology, but also to the environment, also to the animals, um, where the idea of human exceptionalism has really excluded various things in elevating ourselves to a kind of special status. And it might be that we could learn something from, especially indigenous cosmologies, where we occupy a position in a circle of kinship, where all of us um, occupy this fragile planet and we all um, have certain expectations of the other entities that we encounter here but that we all bear responsibility for how we respond to the others whether it be another human person another human animal a tree or even an artifact and how that bears on not only our current condition but also on our futures so so i, I was going to come on to ask you about rights versus responsibilities mm. in in the law and, and in this i guess the the, the immediate r response to that though would be that that i i feel like humans are exceptional in that we we would feel you know we would allocate a degree of responsibility to a human that we would never allocate to a dog right like if a dog runs and if, if i as a human saw a squirrel in the park and and shot it dead you would think well that's a really awful thing to do you'd give me some responsibility for it if my dog went and chased a squirrel and and, and killed it you wouldn't you know uh, expect the dog to be responsible for that in the same way um so is that not a uh a difficult a challenge to to, to that kind of perspective well it's not a difficult challenge insofar as we're already assigning responsibility to non-human entities, right? We already give corporations a certain set of responsibilities that they have to fulfill mm. both morally and legally. And we're able to sort of figure that out. The fact is, is that law is really, it's our game. We invented it, right? It, it's our <laughs> social construct. And yeah. so we bear the responsibility for setting the rules, but we also bear the responsibility for making sure those rules are applied equitably and justly to the wide range of different entities that we are encountered with. And we are not just stacking the deck in our favor. So if, if, we, if, if, so if, we, if we imagine a future then where we're, we're all things and the, the AI you know, unless we'll take any 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 AI you, you you care to name, are we then saying that the AI should bear responsibility for its actions in the same way that a human does under the law? So a lot depends on what AI we're talking about, right? I mean, clearly, if it's today's large language model, it's not going to, you know, really no. push much in that direction. Let's say let's say GPT nine. <laughs> right. So it's, right. it's, it's beyond it's beyond human intelligence. It's way beyond the Turing test, um, and and it can you know, it can interact in a way that's as convincing as, if not superior to a, a human. So I, again, I think it comes down to how we want to design our social our social environment, how we want to create the social world that we occupy. Uh, 
Remember, in the 19th century, we made corporations persons, not because we cared about corporations and what they might think and feel. Mm. We did it because we needed to have a way to sue corporations for bad outcomes right. and to insulate shareholders from liability when a uh, suit is brought by a consumer who is harmed by a product, for example. And it's this kind of very mundane, very practical, very pragmatic decision-making that's going to really drive uh, what happens here. It's not going to be some sort of big metaphysical event where we say, oh, superintelligence is here today, so we've got to figure out how it feels or doesn't feel. It's going to be much more on a case-by-case -case basis as courts and legislatures around the world decide what kind of world we're creating when these entities are taking a greater role in our everyday social interactions. Mm -hmm. And just like the corporation, there may be a point at which we find ourselves having to confront the question of, will we hold the AI responsible for certain decisions and outcomes? And it's not going to be, again, a one-size-fits-all. It's going to be, you know, in this case, how are we going to decide this? How is it going to apply to this particular challenge? And then over time, we'll develop some precedent around various forms of AI and evolve a kind of regulatory environment that will respond to that. Um, none of these things happen quickly. Um, technology moves at light speed, but, you know, law moves at pen and paper speed. And it will take a while for us to, you know, recalibrate yeah. to fit these things. But uh, in my mind, this is not really about the technologies. They will be what they are and they will develop the way they develop. For me, the real pressure is on us. Yeah. Like, what are we going to do in response to the challenges and the opportunities that we are facing with regards to these innovations? I think... The, the 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 reason I the reason I ask I I think is that it's there is a very big question that will face us quite soon with the tech. So I know I, I completely understand everything you're saying about this is the way that we respond to this technology, but I think the, there will be a, a future quite soon in which, you know, essentially the, the the AIs begin mapping goals to actions right so this is this is what like i had liron shapira on uh, I, I don't know if you're aware of him he, he talks about ai a lot you know on twitter um talking about how they're action goal mapping machines and so you have these instrumental goals mm. it, you know it, it, as the tasks we ask ais to complete become increasingly complex they're not just one task anymore they 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 will start breaking them up into smaller tasks and going about achieving all of those different outcomes before they get to the final goal, which is what the, you've asked the human has asked it to achieve. And so the reason I ask is that those, the, the, the AI risk point of view is that we are going to have less and less control over those instrumental goals, those intermediate goals on the way to achieving the one that we've asked it to do. And therefore I think we're going to increasingly get into a position where AIs are doing more and more stuff that we haven't asked them to do for reasons that through inferring our uh, wants, through, through, through inferring what we've, you know, the, 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 the nuance of what we've asked it to do. And so that I think is, is potentially where this could become very interesting is who bears responsibility for the instrumental goal. Right. And you can see already how this is happening even before we get to some sort of speculative future with AI. Um, it used to be that we made decisions about what we watched on TV. We don't anymore, right? I mean, now we go to Netflix and Netflix tells us what we would like to watch. 
<laughs> it used to be that we made decisions about what music we liked and we went and bought new things and tried them out and, and talked to our friends and read maybe music critics to find out what new band we might like. Now Spotify does that for us, right? These, these recommendation algorithms learn our consumer behaviors. It's a pattern that can be mapped very easily and um, you know manipulated and they are able to, um, with the algorithm, pretty much i mean and the reason why it works is we like it right we see this new movie that netflix tells us we're going to like and we're like oh yeah i like this new movie yeah, and yeah. we hear this new song from this band we never heard of before and it's like oh yeah this is music i like yeah this is and so this is how the robot invasion happens it doesn't happen with ray guns and with the uprising and all the stuff science fiction has told us about it happens through this very slow incursion where we turn over more and more of our decision making capabilities to these algorithms and these robots that are doing things that we find very valuable, that we mm. find very convenient and very useful. But mm. I think we, again, it's on the human side. We need to decide when and where we want to limit, limit these things. What are the guardrails? Do we want guardrails? Um, otherwise, we are like narcissists getting, you know, entranced by our own image and losing ourselves in that reflection. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know that we have... Uh, one, the critical capability just yet, because, um, you know, I, even with my students, I ask them, you know, do, do you mind being told what movie to watch? And they're like, oh, that's not a problem. I like these movies. Right. Um, yeah. so I think we have to build a, a sort of a critical capability in, um, each individual so that we are able to keep track of what is changing and how, but we also need to empower government to step in where there are situations where we have imbalances in power. Because this is really about power, right? I mean, this is about how power is being moved from one aspect of the consumer product relationship to another aspect of the consumer product relationship. And one way that you control for power is with re regulation and policy. And so I think using regulation and policy as a way of ensuring human flourishing at a time when we are facing all of these incursions into our world by these machines is absolutely crucial and you know it, again it's for us to decide yeah i think the recommendation algorithm example is is really good um because i think if you you know like you mentioned netflix uh but if you take like facebook for example newsfeed mm -hmm. is a recommendation algorithm as well and you think well okay we all love well we don't love using facebook but we use it we find it very sticky i mean who bears responsibility for any downstream impact that Facebook's recommendation algorithm has on wider society, on democracy. Um, so I guess you are right in that sense that we're already grappling with these issues, whether we like it or not, right? Right. And this is why I said we have to do this now. We can't wait for that speculative future where we've got the super intelligent AI or whatever. Um, yeah. We've got to look at the really tiny things that are happening currently that seem so mundane and so uh, almost invisible. Um, you know, I, I the way I explain it often is the the robot invasion or the robot uprising won't look like science fiction. It's going to look like the fall of Rome. The way Rome fell is the Romans invited the barbarians in to their society and turned over more and more administrative tasks to the barbarians. And one day, Rome was gone. God, so that's 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 what we're gonna we're gonna. So, <laughs> so what you're saying is I shouldn't give that task to ChatGPT to do. I should. <laughs> Write it myself. <laughs> well, I mean, lest, so this, lest I herald the downfall of civilization. Yeah, so unwittingly, this is. I mean, it really is a crucial human decision. Like we can decide what powers to turn over to the algorithm, yeah. 
and we can decide when not to. And I don't know that we have a good sense just yet individually or communally as to what we want this to look like. No, I don't think so either. I, I mean, I think if anything, you know, the surveys I've seen, most when they when they survey the, the public at large, most people don't want a, any more AI advancement, um, which I also don't personally agree with. I was, I was speaking to a a um, founder of a male breast cancer charity last week who's who we, he's a breast cancer survivor himself um, we're talking about male breast cancer mm -hmm. I didn't even know it existed but we were talking about the technology roadmap for cancer and you know in, it, when you when you when you think about how the, the the scope of technology in in medical science alone you almost get to a place where you start thinking well is it can it be ethical to hold it back at all you know, how many millions of lives could we save if we just accelerated straight through and, and regulated later? Uh, you know, like we, you know, we, we could, you know, I believe we could cure cancer within decades, you know, um, not centuries. So I think it, you, you do bump up against these questions, but I guess there are other risks inherent in, in doing so. Um, accelerationism has its, has its downsides, I guess. I think another problem is, is that when, when you're looking for the AI, the notion people have in their brains is of the super intelligent stuff, the AGI stuff. Yeah. And a lot of what is happening right now with, for example, recommendation algorithms. I ask my students, for example, do you think recommendation algorithms are AI? The answer, no. Mm. So they're looking for a problem that isn't there yet and missing the problem that is here right now. Yeah. And so I think we've got to be really focused on what we mean when we mean when we say AI, and you know what is actually happening with a lot of this tech innovation that um, oftentimes flies under the radar because it doesn't qualify as AI capital A capital I. Mm, yeah, it's just a smooth curve of, of technology. I was listening to Sam Altman on the on the Joe Rogan podcast. He was. Um, I mean, I listen to Sam Altman whenever he does interviews, to be honest. I think he's like, you know, the 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 guy that's changing the world more than anyone else right now. But he talks about this just, it's a smooth curve, you know, and we've been on it for years. Um, and, and we're only at the, you know, at the bottom of it. It's a smooth exponential. And we've been on it for far longer than we realize. And it's not just suddenly going to, it's not, it's never going to be a right angle. It's just going to accelerate faster and faster. Mm. Which is why, you know, I, I really try to encourage people to think about these bigger questions about law and ethics now because yeah. we're at the beginning stage of something that's only going to you know accelerate in various ways and if we can get a handle on the small things we have a chance of getting a handle on the big things but if we wait until the big things are here we've already have made decisions by default about our you know possible future and keeping an eye on what is changing how it's changing where it's changing in real time, I think, is the real challenge for us. Well, look, David, you've been very generous with your time, um, and I, uh, I think we're, we're running up against it now. Um, briefly before we wrap, is there anything that you um, would like to get across from your position on this that, that perhaps I haven't um, asked about or that, that we haven't covered? 
Um, no, I think we've covered almost all of it. I, I would just reemphasize the fact that I think a lot of this uh, we often think is about the AI and the robots. But in my mind, this is really about us. It's about how we decide our future individually and together. And that is something that I think is our responsibility. And I would just emphasize that uh, my concern is what, what are we doing? Uh, to respond to these challenges and these opportunities. Awesome. Well, look, um, the book Person Thing Robot is out now. In So most of my listeners are UK and US. Um, where can they pick it up? All good bookstores? So here's the really good news. If you want a physical copy, yes, please go to a bookstore and, and purchase from a bookstore. But MIT has released the book Open Access, which means you can download it for free from the MIT Press website. Awesome. Well, look, it'll give you a PDF and you can read it immediately. Perfect. I have that link um, and I will make sure to put it in the show notes. So um, anyone listening or watching, you can, you can find the link right there. Um, well, look, in that case then, um, thank you so much for your time. It's been a super interesting conversation. Uh, you've, you've made me think about a lot of these issues in, in ways that I most certainly had not previously considered. So, um, yeah, it's been great. Uh, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. It's been a very nice conversation.